0: Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press podcast. In this week's episode, best selling author and games historian John Peterson will be speaking to Peter Biebergau about Dungeons and Dragons, fantasy fiction, and his new book, Appendix N. Peter Biebergau is a writer based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the author of multiple books, including Strange Frequencies, Season of the Witch, and Too Much to Dream. In February, Strange Attractor published his most recent book, Appendix N. Taking its name from the list of inspirational reading provided in the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons, his book brings together short stories and other fragments of writing that generated and continue to populate the literary context of Dungeons & Dragons. Speaking with Peter is John Peterson, who is a leading expert on Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games generally, and the author of many books including Playing at the World, Dungeons & Dragons Art & Arcana, and the New York Times bestseller Heroes Feast. He's also the author of The Elusive Shift and the forthcoming Game Wizards, both published by the MIT Press. With all that said, I'll now hand over to John and Peter. Welcome to the
1: MIT Press podcast. Uh, My name is John Peterson and I'm here today with Peter Biebergal, who is the author of a book I was really psyched to hear about when I learned that it was about to be released. It is called Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons. So Peter, thanks so much for, for coming on.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. I'm a fan of your work and um, it's really great, really great to meet you and to be talking to you about, I think, something that we both love very much. <laughs>
1: We do both love this very much. And, you know, this. we we, we need to be careful not to be too inside baseball. <laughs> I think that that's <laughs> in, right. Exactly. I think so, that that's right. I mean, I think it's probably important just from the get-go. Can you tell us a bit about Appendix N? Uh, what it is, what it, what it tells us, and, and why it's so interesting to people like you and
2: I? <laughs> sure. So Appendix N is an appendix from the uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, that was released in 1979. Interestingly, it was not the first book in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons line to be released. We can talk about about that. And it is a section which Gary Gygax, who is essentially the, the named author of the Dungeon Master's Guide, and he calls it the inspirational and educational reading section of this Dungeon Master's Guide. And he proposes in this appendix, which is really not even, doesn't even take up a whole page in the book, is his attempt to show new players or just people who have been familiar with the game, the kinds of literary influences on him growing up and just what he loves in terms of as as being a reader and how they helped him in some ways this is where it gets tricky, but I think in some ways how it helped shaped the look and feel of, of Dungeons & Dragons. What's interesting about Appendix N, though, is I think it's not a good place to find out where he got ideas for rules or for sort of the populace, the population like monsters and characters or classes within the world. There's a little bit of that in there. and It'll be fun with you to try to tease out. What some of those are. But I like to think of it essentially as really just a window into the mind of Gary Gygax of the books and stories that he loved. And as a game designer who was going to be, who was designing a game that was essentially a fantasy role-playing game, how those kind of, was sort of like the DNA of his uh, thinking about what fantasy was and how to sh- how to make worlds so I think there's a lot of world building too which is something that's an important part of what he gleaned I think from from some of these texts
1: definitely and yeah I mean when we look at DD you know there may be people who are listening to this that aren't super familiar with the kinds of stories you end up in in DD right. so maybe that would be kind of an interesting place for us to start on exploring like what the scope of that influence might have been What do you see as kind of the the life or arc of the typical dungeon adventure? What do you do when you play D&D? If you're a player, you take on a character. That character is going to be in a heroic fantasy context and is going to have some adventures. But like what kind of what's your perspective? Because this is an interesting curated list of stories you provided in this book. And we'll we'll delve into that in some detail. And what's your perspective on what what is the kind of stories you end up telling with D&D?
2: Well, I think one thing that's interesting, though, is especially for people who are playing now, who were first introduced to D&D via the more current editions like what's now called 5e the fifth edition of d and I think in some ways and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is a little bit different of the game that Guy Gax describes in the Dungeon Master's Guide in 1979. And I think it's partly because I think that the Dungeon Master's Guide in 1979 is describing a little bit more of a fantasy sandbox. Whereas I think the Dungeons & Dragons of the fifth edition, which is what most or many people really, especially those new to the game, are playing today, seems a little less sandboxy insofar as Dungeons & Dragons feels like a universe of places and people and gods and things. So what's interesting about the d d of the Dungeon Master's Guide in Appendix N, and that it's a little bit more feels a little bit more sandbox, is that it is, I think, a little bit more, owns a little bit more to those pulp influences that is what drove Gygax in many ways, and that we see in Appendix N. So, in many ways, and this then is true for all d really, though, but the core is, you are some, like you said, some form of heroic adventurer who is trying to there's always the quest i mean this goes back right to some very classic even fantasy tropes you're given a quest a puzzle to solve someone to rescue a monster to stop a treasure to find and you're placed sort of in a location where you then have to succeed or or not right <laughs> in uncovering or completing the quest and i think what's interesting is that in many ways it was i think it was very oriented towards the idea that these adventures were for the most part likely to take place in some kind of dungeon or underground or lost temple or some structure, right? There were certainly what were called wilderness campaigns, but I think that when you look at D&D and, and you see that, that influence that there really does seem to be this idea that that the gameplay is much more, uh, is very local if that if that makes sense um, in terms of like a place
1: yeah it definitely that 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 does make a lot of sense and i mean it it might help as well to talk a little bit about modules or the ways yes. that the earliest ways that d and d tried to integrate explicit stories into the game where yeah. there is a prepackaged you know uh, sold product that contains a dungeon or an adventure might be wilderness or under underworld uh, or whatever. And that, you know, that the players find their characters kind of thrust into a very specific quest. And, you know, that that led to this whole new kind of authorship uh, dimension, potentially, uh, to the game, as opposed to the more freeform. If you look at the very, very earliest version of the rules, you see... You're being instructed to devise your own dungeon, right? Devise your own world, your own situations, and then it's, right. this this kind of transitioned eventually into a more authorial thing. And I think, to your point, a lot of the 5e players today. I mean, there's this thing we call the Adventures League. There's there's like a set of modules that are major releases that come out of the Coast that you know, pe- people play kind of, it's a, it's almost like uh, tournament seasons, right? <laughs> yes. Right. Every, everyone gets a new adventure to play and people play through them. And so certainly that, that has gone to a point where often prescribing a story arc, if you're successful, if you make it through the dungeon, if you're not all killed by a bugbear right. or whatever, <laughs> um, right. has become, a, a, I think, a much more significant part of it than it was in the initial
2: yeah. vision of the game. Yes. And I think that the initial vision of the game also, which is very fascinating to me was built into the rule book, especially the dungeon master's guide is the a fully functioning set of guidelines and charts for playing completely improv. And so you could play it just like that without any, I mean, you could quickly devise an overarching backstory and why you're there, but it's very interesting. You don't need that broader authorship of a world or a campaign or multiple uh tiers of sort of um conspiracies right to get the the characters to just be in doing what was and is sometimes still called a dungeon crawl
1: yeah and obviously that was the roots of so many procedurally generated dungeon games that have come since the roguelikes you know down That's to right. some of the ways diablo and things like that work and so certainly an idea that had like really long legs Yes. Right. But I mean, the the interesting thing about looking at D&D through the lens of the fantasy fiction that inspired it is, you know, the relationship between those fictions, the kind of stories you might experience, right, when you go into D&D. And as you point out in the intro to the book, you know there there were a couple of versions of this that came out there was kind of guy gax's original appendix and citing his influences in 79 and and certainly if you go back you can find places in dragon magazine That's or right. even earlier Very short where short little lists yeah yep. we had these, these smaller lists of kind
2: of these are the you things he's even mentioned Piers anthony
1: i read some of those Xanth books when i was a oh, kid i love I, those i, I remember yeah. them <laughs> yep. but you know and then there was the Moldvay version, right? That came out That's with right. uh, the BX um, basic SAT in 1981. And you you draw on both, actually, or at least
2: you you examine both in this. Yes. And I examine, and it's interesting, what I try to do is I, I didn't want to dive too deep into that list, except to find what I maybe, and I'm sure that some folks who read this book will be critical of, I made some executive decisions about things that I knew Gygax must have been aware of and for whatever reason didn't include in Appendix N, but felt that they are still so, they still feel so much a part of that zeitgeist that it was hard to not want to at least let readers know. These are some other tales that were considered essential pulp fantasy stories. Very likely Gygax was aware of them. Why they're not in here, I don't know, but they are in this other appendix and or you know version of it. So I thought it was fair to draw from that. I do think what's interesting about the later guide to you know fantasy fiction for its influence on D D was that it was more about stories that looked like D D games as opposed to proto D D stories, and that's why you start to see a lot of contemporary fiction to that time, especially by that point where we already start to see in the late 70s and 80s this real explosion of quest-based fantasy fiction. Somewhat inspired by D&D, but probably more inspired by the resurgence of popularity in Tolkien that was happening in the 60s and 70s, especially with like the um, Hobbit animated show, The Lord of the Ring films. And then you start to have those series like sort of Shannara and you know the Piers Anthony and and this sort of epic fantasy fiction, doorstop trilogy type things, I think was much more contemporary to the DD of 1981 than believe it or not, I think even to the DD of 79, I think in those years there's really an incredible upsurge in the fiction world and even in, in pop culture in general, don't you think? In films especially.
1: No, I, I remember you remarking in the introduction that, you know, you always thought of wizards like uh, Gandalf in the Rankin-Bass adaptation, right? That's <laughs> like right, that, that exactly. Visualized when you thought of a wizard, and I'm sure that's, that's true of right. a lot of us who were growing up uh, around that time. Yes. But it is, as you say, it's your own appendix set. And I think you, you make that clear that this is, yes. these are the things that, and I, I found actually, obviously many of the stories um, in there I'd read before, but I, I reread them when I got an advanced copy of the book. And I was really astonished by the thematic unity across them. I, mean, I think as a curated selection, there are a lot of things that these stories really tend to have in common. So many of the stories are of the wandering adventurer who shows up at this town, right? And this town has a problem, and this problem needs to be, it's almost like a Western or or something like that. So can you talk a bit about, because I I felt like a conscious curation decision to me to kind of show that is the primary focus of this. Talk a bit about that selection and why you found that kind of the most fertile to examine.
2: Sure. Well, I think it was partly a matter of what I of some of the restrictions that I, that I found that I had to place on, on the book. So for example, as I started to go through, you know, there's the idea, let's put together this appendix. Sounds great. Okay. But now what is that really going to look like when you start to look at what is actually in Gygax's list? First of all, a great number of them are novels and I didn't want to excerpt novels it's just not interesting for readers. It doesn't feel like the, it then it just feels like it's a little bit too of a sampler of something rather than of a of a of a nice collection that you could sit and maybe not know anything or care anything about DD and still enjoy these stories, right? So I wanted to avoid that. There were also some things that I couldn't get the rights for for whatever reason, right? That that limits you in many ways. And then what I also found was that there were authors that Guy Gax named. And he would name works of theirs that I felt were not quite as well. One thing is, I wanted to see if I, when he only mentioned the novels, I wanted to see if I could find instead short stories by those same authors that seemed to capture the spirit of the novels that he loved, right? Because again, I didn't want to excerpt. So the, it was, a, it was, it was a really amazing experience to sort of really sift through all that. And I really want to give a shout out to the Specialist Internet Fiction, S- Fiction Database. Yes, yeah. thank you. The Internet Special Fiction Database. This is like what the web was, is supposed to be for. I mean, this is old school. You can look up an author. You can look up then link to any of their stories. It will list every place that story has appeared and it will have the cover art for every place in which that story appeared or for the book in, if it's a novel. So sometimes what I would do is I would, you know, I would just troll through author lists of short stories. And then again, luckily, thanks to something like archive.org, be able to then find those stories in their own electronic archive of all these pulp magazines to be able to read them, get a sense if they felt like they were right. And so given all those limitations, I realized, you know what, in the end, this really is going to be my appendix end. This is my appendix end of Gygax's appendix end. And so what do I, what does that feel like for me? Well, what does D&D feel like to me? D&D feels a little bit more like Conan, say, um, than it does, believe it or not, Tolkien, right? Right. So I felt like I wanted to find something that felt a little pulpier, a little weirder, a little more like what the 70s felt like in terms of the pop culture. And so I hope that what My Appendix N is is My Appendix N of is a weirder version of Guy Gax's Appendix N, one that's really looking for the necromantic magics and the the strange, You know, there's there's even a story where the um, protagonist has to go through a portal into another dimension to meet with some almost Lovecraft-like demonic creature so that she can save her kingdom. You know, there's a C.L. Moore story. So um, I was sort of, again, trying to find things that felt that the the, the heroes or the protagonists were um, under threat of terrible injury or death. <laughs> Right, um, and when that wasn't the case, that what they were encountering was almost Lovecraftian in its Eldritch, to use that word again, um, feel.
1: And definitely, I mean, anyone who knows your previous work, and I'm a great admirer of your uh, Season of the Witch. Oh, thank you know, you. Knows how much you, you've tapped into that '70s zeitgeist. You were just you were just describing, you know, in your descriptions of Zeppelin and Bowie and things like that um, in that book, and so I think I think. It's the kind of collection I would have expected you to curate, which
2: is
0: (laughs) that (laughs) does make it. I mean that in a good way. (laughs) I
2: Appreciate that, yeah. And I think we all have; everybody has their own appendix to end. And I think it's it's important to recognize that we all have those texts that I think, as as gamers in particular, as people who play role playing games, especially those of us who maybe our DMs who want to create worlds were absolutely influenced in many ways by the movies we've seen, the books that we've read, the comics, all of that. And drawing from all of those things, um, I think shows how what Gygax did was almost kind of give all DD players permission to sort of curate their own stories for their own experience with d d But at the same time, I hope, despite how, yes, Personal it is in that way, that it still honors Guy Gax's original list. That I don't veer, you know, 90% of the stuff in there is from his list. Maybe not the stories are exactly to those he mentioned, but at least to the authors. And so it's not so far out that it's still not in the end, I I hope, a good look at the stuff that influenced Gygax.
1: No, definitely. I, I think it is. And, you know, I mean... I think we all acknowledge as well that sometimes Gygax isn't as straightforward as he should be about some right. of his influences. Uh, you alluded to Tolkien as we went through that and obviously I mean anybody thinking about the origins of D&D to- Tolkien's a big part of it. Like kind of what what's your take on Gax's love-hate would that be the way to put it relationship with Tolkien and yeah, you know that's really something yeah, there, there's one aspect of that as well that I think is very salient to this discussion and to the stories you curated. You know, I mean, a lot of these heroic fantasy stories are about single adventurers who show up, which is, as we know, usually not how you play d d Usually right. you're in a group and a lot of people attribute that group structure to the Fellowship of the Ring, to the, That's right. you know, the company of dwarves, right, that <laughs> right. Uh, Bilbo Baggins was attached to, you know, and you do have uh, a few stories in there of which the one that I think hits closest to the mark in terms of Gygax influences is certainly uh two sort adventure. I, I guess you use the uh, Jewel, Jewel in the forest. Th- title that's for right. That. That's yeah. right. Yes. Which is, is not a story about a soul adventure. It's a story about Fatford and the gray Mouser, right. Coming that's right. together yes. and you know, they're, they have their own dynamic and that dynamic may be very familiar. I think to D and D players,
2: it feels the most D and D like story. Probably. Yeah.
1: yeah. And it's an old one, right? That that yes, really very goes old. back. Yep, it's the it's, 30s, yeah. Yep. But you also, I noticed you you curated a number of other stories that also kind of have a group to them. Like there's the story about Marcus and and Diana and their trip to the town of vampires. There's the story. Yes. Even the Conan story, uh, Tower of the Elephants, a very famous Conan story. You know, is not one where he is acting solo. Where he actually enlists a confederate in the middle of his. That's right. Yes. They at least briefly work together. (laughs) I know exactly. The ignominious death. Yes, and I
2: love his the friend he meets there. I mean, it's Mm. such a great. But it is. It's the kind of those. Pragmatic friendships that you assume your party has to maintain um, when you're playing D and D, so that you can sort of get along well enough to work together, right? Even though you may not agree 100% with somebody else's, maybe the paladin is too stuck up for you, or whatever. Right, right, is, right. Right. But I also think that it's also interesting that the. You think the Elric story is going to be a story about a group, but ends up just, again, being Elric doing his thing. I was very excited to be able to get the Elric of Melonbone story in there and was able to talk to Linda Moorcock, uh, Michael Moorcock's wife, and secure those rights. And there's a very interesting conversation we had about that because we were, I was originally thinking that I might try to see if I could secure the rights to some of the illustrations of, of where some of these stories appeared in the pulp magazines where they first appeared science fantasy and science yeah. fantasy exactly weird tales and so i found the science fantasy where that story first appeared and i had mentioned to her that i might want to use uh, i might i said i might be illustrating the book and um, in that way and she said Michael wanted me to ask you to please not use that particular drawing of Elric, which is found in the original Science Fantasy (laughs) Pulp Magazine, because he's sort of like, um, he doesn't look like the Elric that we have come to know from comics And even covers of the sort of more famous covers, where he's sort of you know this sort of aquiline features, and um, he sort of looks—he's a little chunkier than you might expect Elric to be, a little (laughs) little broader, you know. So there was even you know he wanted to make sure, even though you know when you read a story, you have your own ideas about this character, that he still felt that 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 idea of Elric in the original pulp drawing was not quite right. And that was another thing that I want to say about working on a a book like this is interacting with the estates and even with some of the living authors of some of these stories. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a story about The Tower of Darkness by David Madison. So, David Madison, that story is found in the Swords Against One of the Swords Against Darkness collection, which Gygax cites. And again, it's a weird thing where Gygax cites, I think, Gygax Cites number three in the series, but why number three? One through four contain amazing tales. So that was another place where I looked at all of those Swords Against Darkness anthologies and pulled out things again from authors that Gygax mentions or, or from things that I felt really felt like that they were part of that thinking that, that shaped DD. So Dave, the David Madison is I, I found out that he wasn't alive anymore. And I did that sort of, you know, when you're Google searching and you get to the fifth or sixth page of your Google search and you've about to realize you're too far afield. But I did uncover an old blog post by this woman named Amanda. And I was able to find her on Facebook and I friended her and I asked her, I said, do you happen to know anything about David Madison? I'd love to be able to get in touch with his family or his estate uh, to use this wonderful story. And she said, well, in fact, I am the owner of his estate. Be happy to give you permission. He actually committed suicide when he was, I think, 28 years old. And he was one of these young writers who were part of, this really important fanzine, uh, science fiction and fantasy fanzine scene of the mid to late sixties and seventies, where a lot of these authors got started. There would maybe be fifty to hundred copies of these zines. What's also amazing is that internet database has all those zines listed. Like they did that level of research to compile that, to compile that website. But I, I was so. Honored to be able to have this. I think tale that's in some ways lost now, unless you happen to have some of these old pulp magazines or have that version of uh, Swords Against Darkness for this young writer who was writing fantastic fantasy fiction. And Sad isn't around anymore. And I, so that was again one of the pleasures of of putting together an anthology like this of, of stories that some of which I think people aren't even aware of.
1: I mean, I certainly hadn't read it before. That was one of the, the few in there that I, I was completely ignorant of going into it. And so, and yeah, it's a cool story. It's, it's the vampire survival, right? Yes, exactly, yes. It's a, really a horror survival game. Yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> That's a very cool story. I wanted to ask as well a bit about the order you chose for this like so you know i'm like a super pedantic historian type of person and like for me i would have done them in chronological order in a couple because in part i'd want to show what was post D. oh and interesting really, by, i
2: think that's very clever get yeah to
1: 79 i mean to me 79 is D is already long in the ah, tooth <laughs> yeah, maybe i should have done that
0: no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean having having um done Sany, for example at, at the end I mean, I thought was was cool because um, before the comic was cool to kind of give you that kind of most primal vision of it. But, you know, as I was reading them and I, I was always trying to draw the chains of influence, right?
2: Yes. Well, let me see if I can help you think, think with me why I, or bring you along with, with why I did them the way that I did. There, were, there was a couple of considerations. The first is there are three very long stories in here. Uh, the Tower of the Elephant's the Dreaming City by Michael Moorcock, Tower of Elephant is Robert E. Howard Conan story, Dreaming City by Moorcock is the Elric story. Um, and then The Black God's Kiss. Very long. And I wanted to make sure that those were not too closely paired in the in the way the book was laid out. So I decided to use those as the frame. Uh, those long stories, so that the reading of it felt, you know, you were getting to these, building up to these sort of almost epic tales. And then I was trying to think again, how, so that changed my thinking instead of doing it either chronologically or alphabetically to actually envision the book as a dungeon crawl. And so if you look at the book itself, We devised a map that is in the front and back, you know, that spreads out into a full map. And so the table of contents, it's a little contrived, I'll admit, but fun. The table of contents, um, each story corresponds to a room in the dungeon that you'd be exploring. So I decided, wouldn't it be fun to see... To navigate these stories as if you were playing a DD and d module, which is also why at the beginning of the book, even before the introduction, there's a, a sort of a little bit of a, as if this were a D&D module, how it might introduce you as the players. And then the table of contents, like I said, is supposed to be a key rather than a table of contents, a key to the, to the dungeon itself. Which is cool. and It's cool, fun. but yes, and, but probably yeah. not as rigorous <laughs> historically as I think. And I really appreciate that because I do think hearing you say that there's something missing in not getting the feel for the later, the earliest tales like Dunsany to the later tales like David Madison's.
1: And, you know, I mean, after D&D came out, I mean, as I'm sure we're both aware, there, there were attempts to do fiction that was explicitly based on D&D, like Andrew yes. Norton's, you know, Quag Keep, That's things right. like that. And so, you know, I mean, to me, it's kind of, I guess, because I study it so much, I think of the release of D&D as a seminal moment that unleashed all these creative forces in the world <laughs> Exactly. And, and, you know, that it's, uh, it, it's good to kind of tabulate what may have begun to just have that influence exerted on it because certainly it turned out i think to have a profound influence absolutely. on the way people yes. approached fantasy fiction
2: absolutely um, and you start to see that in the in 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 later editions of dragon magazine where the the earlier stories were just more general fantasy fiction right but the later stories really seem to be trying to capture a d like experience
1: yeah definitely definitely And I I think as well, I mean, thematically, I'm interested in the authors who knew each other, the things that were connected, any universes that were shared and, you know, or or, because of Lovecraft, obviously. I mean, anytime we look at D&D and the collaborative authorship that kind of goes into creating stories, people draw parallels, people who do textual criticism academically, right? Between that practice and the shared universe that is inhabited by a few of the authors you mentioned here, uh, including Love Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, and by the way, props for including Clark Ashton Smith, I agree. That's one that should, you know, in which it is, I mean, I've heard people uh, go out on a limb for uh, seven Gaius's, it's like the key story Oh, that, interesting. Like, you should have, okay. but- yeah. I mean, Empire of the Necromancers is just such a gritty, eerie, like you said, to, speaking precisely to the sensibilities you're trying to evoke. Yes, that, you know, I have to approve of that, and of course Howard as well. That's that right. Lovecraft, Ashton, Howard. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between them and the maybe you know the shared universe that Lovecraft probably was the first to start articulating around that? Yeah, I
2: mean, so you know, I've, of course, people know Lovecraft sort of de- devised a, a kind of a notion of the universe populated by these anti-deities, which we call the Cthulhu mythos, which had, you know, different, the elder gods and old ones. And and he struck up early on, I think, a correspondence, I think first with, um, with Howard, if, if I'm right. And they had a very long uh, friendship, which is seen in, you can see in these letters and I, there was this idea that you know Howard might in fact imp- have a story that kind of exists in tangent with these the same world that the Cthulhu lives in, right? That these that these deities live in, and similarly, he would have a relationship like that with Clark Ashton Smith, who personally I think is the better of all three of them in terms of stylists, but we can have a different debate about that. Um, so I do for you listeners who haven't encountered Clark Ashton Smith, if you get this book and you like that story, I highly recommend seeking out um, other collections of his. And he too thought, you know, he could participate. And so they created sort of this shared thing, which I think it's, not until then that we begin to call to Cthulhu mythos, right? I don't think Lovecraft ever called his world the mythos until other authors started playing in that, that sandbox.
1: And maybe the sandboxes of DD, the, the Forgotten Realms or, you know, thing, things like that that are so huge for Fifth today are similarly kind of these collaborative sandboxes
2: that we all participate in. That's right. Yeah, I think so. But it is interesting to me, and I, w- and I would really love to hear your thoughts about this because I know it's a little bit controversial. So, you know, we're we're living in a time right now where D is has seen is incredibly popular. And I think and this was happening even pre-pandemic, right? I think the pandemic only really helped it's exp- people now just bored at home wanting to try new things, right? Um and it really turns out you really can play D&D over Zoom. Not my favorite way of doing it, but it, it's definitely can be done. But even pre-pandemic, you had what was called the OSR, right? The old school renaissance. And again, for listeners who might not know what that is, this is a sort of movement that was trying to get role-playing games back to what was perceived as more improv, less rule, tight, tightly you know, codified rule sets. So the earliest versions of D&D where they're slim little Right, pamphlets of rule books right, that really requires the players and the DM to sort of collaboratively decide on the shape of a game or a world. So it feels more like, in some ways, even though the games themselves are can be very dungeon-crawly, they still can almost feel more character or role-playing driven. Subsequent versions of d d seem to, and this is where the controversy is in you could argue right or wrong. And I'm really, John, I mean, you're the expert here, so I hope I'm not, you know, please correct me. But subsequent versions of d and to put much more emphasis on the skills and prowess of the characters you created to the point where it felt, I think for a lot of players, that you were playing more like a fantasy superhero than somebody like Conan, <laughs> who was just trying to crawl through a dungeon, find the treasure, and make it out alive. And I think five E is try to get a little bit back to some of those general sensibility of D D in the earlier days. But I still find what's interesting is how different D D looks now. It, it does feel more, even though it might feel more like the, it can be lo- a looser play. It feels even more like a contained universe. And it did at least when I played.
1: Yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's a broad uh, question. We could do a whole hour yeah. uh, just just about this, I'm sure, if we wanted. But uh, yeah, I mean, there was the distinction. And I mean, it, its roots are really in the distinction between the 1974 product Right. And the openness that, you know, everywhere through in it, Gygax and arneson are appealing to us to don't let us do any more of your imagining for you. Right. Go out and make make what you want with this tool. No two d campaigns should be alike in their rules and their setting. This is really just a tool to unleash your creativity to the point where, you know, early critics and thinking people like John Freeman, you know, would say that, you know, d d was less a game than a design a game kit or maybe maybe even less than that, you know, it's it's a system for designing a game system. And with AD&D, I think is actually when it started, when in 1978, the Player's Handbook came out, and then subsequently the Dungeon Master's Guide, which contained the Appendix n we're here to talk about today. I mean, they were much more prescriptive. This was really a point where for a variety of commercial and other political factors we don't need to go into here, they were trying to clamp down a bit on that original invitation. But to me, any version of DD still contains that core possibility, right? Yeah. to have your have it your way. It's Burger King. Like, you know, this, this is this can be an artisanal experience that you and your friends agree upon around a table, or as the case may be now, a Zoom Brady bunch display. And you know, nobody other than the people participating need to like it or need to think right, it's cool. Exactly. You, can, you can always have it your way. And I, I don't think that 5e or even 3E really ever tried to prevent that. Right. Yes. Um, certainly, when I was talking about modules earlier, modules are a great example of something that is, you know, uh, an aid to the dungeon master, to the person running D&D that provides them guidance on how to structure a particular adventure so you don't have to do the work of figuring out what should be in this room or procedurally generating it, as you point out, with like die rolls as you go. But those products have always been. You know, they're they're a huge part of D&D. They're very commercially successful. A mm-hmm. lot of people play them, but it's it's certainly always been possible, and I think always will be possible with anything that's really D&D, right? Yes. For for you to have it your way, just based on, hey, I read this cool story. I read Black God's Kiss and I wanna have this like dimension you go into, or there are these shadowy monsters that you're gonna interface with, and there's a quest, and you know, we're just gonna run it the way that I think that story could have gone. With a group of people yeah, going into right. it, that's, and that's that's always yes. been
2: the virtue of D yes. It's always been its magic. Yes, there does seem to be, and I appreciate that. And I think that that's, I think people feel so people feel too beholden to the rules when you still don't have to be. There's nobody's. There's no grand rules of lawyer <laughs> except for an individual at the table, right? But there does seem to be a aesthetic homogeneity that you didn't see in the earlier Mm -hmm. versions of D&D. And I think that's mainly because maybe it just had to do with it being sort of smaller press and not being able to hire in the way. And I don't know. I mean, maybe you could talk to that. Why do you think, and, and that was part of what I was trying to do with appendix N. And I think seeing that in Guy Gax's own list is how different some of these tales are from each other and, and it feeling like D itself, when you would open up even that dungeon master's guide, all the different artwork styles, some very low, <laughs> amateurish, low yes. amateurish, some very beautifully done, but it almost seems that current DD is all painted with the same brush. And I'm curious as to why you think, that's happened over the just the iterations of the game.
1: I mean, I, I certainly think you're correct that as it became a business and not just a hobby, right? To because when when they published D and D originally, it was still like basically a hobby to Gygax and Ernestine and their friends that work with them on this. And yeah, by by the 80s, they could afford the Larry Elmores, the Jeff Easleys, like people who would be able to provide a quality of art that was unimaginable when they started out. I mean, I, I worked on this book that came out a couple of years ago called Art in Arcana, which actually yeah, kind of traces, yeah. you know, the earliest art. And I, I wrote a lot of the 70s part of that, obviously, myself. And I mean, yeah, th- these were local kids who could draw a little bit that would work basically for free to two or three dollars a picture. was like a punk draw, rock uh, like to I like to, I was, like to connect. Yeah. I
2: like to make that connection for myself. It felt that way. I mean, even when I first discovered the game, I felt like the underground quality of it was very attractive.
1: It well, I mean, it's extremely compelling to me. Obviously, yeah, because it shows that you can get by and get the idea across and get people's imaginations fired up with the simplest things. It's it's kind of like retro eight bit gaming where you invest, you know, all of the actual graphics, <laughs> like you know, you, they come out of your mind. And you kind of impose them on these games that 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 you play. But but yeah, certainly to your point, like by the time you get to fifth edition. And, you know, Wizards of the Coast, obviously, is now by Hasbro. And I mean, they have considerable resources and staff and they have they have codes and practices. That's right. right? They have a style guide, right? They have That that will lead to um, some homogeneity in terms of how these things are, are visually presented. And there's also just much more scrutiny of the rules themselves, certainly since the Internet, since. You can just, you know, tweet at somebody at Wizards, right, and get responses on rules clarifications and things like it. Yeah, there's a much higher expectation that the system be consistent, that it be exhaustive, that it cover. All, all the things you might want to try to do. And that that just wasn't the case, right, back in the day. Right, and right. The, the kinds of structures you need to support that, they're necessarily going to make the, the game world feel more, more homogenous. And yeah, I, I think as well, the choice in 5th edition to predicate things on the Forgotten Realms, in particular on Ed Greenwood's creation, even... Taking classic things like the Tomb of Horrors, or I think things we would associate with Greyhawk back in the 1970s, and relocating them, transplanting yes, them into
2: That's right the,
1: the Forgotten Realms in <laughs> different places. I mean that right. that certainly makes that um, even more pronounced. Well, because
2: I mean it's, it, it's partly the power of that power of something like the Marvel Universe. Right, and you could tell all kinds of different stories within that. You can have the TV shows that never mention the movies necessarily, like the Netflix Daredevil. But but we know that they all exist in this shared place, and there's something very both comforting and um, exciting about you know when you start to get into the lore, right, and making those connections. So I think that that's also how a lot of properties take on that element. Right. I wanted to ask you. Uh, of the books and authors mentioned in Gygax's Appendix N, what are some of your standouts? What do you sort of love from his list?
1: Good question. I mean, so I, I was reading Elric and things like that when I grew up. And frankly, it wasn't until I started studying D&D that I became familiar with people like Fritz Leiber, for example. And, you know, I, I find, you know, the core authors that Gygax initially identified, um, which includes, you know, DeCamp and Pratt, for example... Um, and I, I, I know, couldn't get even, the rights
2: to those. Yeah, I wanted yeah. I wanted them. So again, I, I do want to say for listeners who might say, why wasn't this author story <laughs> in there? It was probably because I couldn't get the rights. Well, that makes sense. Like I Fox mean, I, Gardner,
1: I, I, I couldn't get the rights. Interesting. Yeah, yeah interesting. Now, and th- there is some good stuff in that. I mean, to me, I, I really go back to, yeah, Moorcock, to Anderson, to DeCamp and Pratt. Yeah, you know, the, the Edgar Rice Burroughs angle is one that I get it, inspirationally why that's there, but is isn't as direct a hit for me as some of the others. Yes, obviously, you know, I I think the influence of Tolkien on all of this is is downplayed to a degree that is almost cynical yeah. in the way that that Guy presents it. Well, sometimes. he does double it.
2: so we we didn't get to talk about that. We we had mentioned that earlier on. I mean, There is a Dragon article in one of the early issues where he seems to go, Gygax seems to go out of his way to say, the elements of play that I was conceiving are not influenced by Tolkien. That Gandalf is not a wizard that you could play in D&D.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I, I think that's certainly true. You know, at the same time, I think there's four... Uh, references to Tolkien in the first printing of D&D, right? I mean, a description <laughs> yes. of like orcs, his description of the rock, you know, the eagles yes. from Tolkien, uh, specters, there's one more, whites maybe. But, you know, I mean, so I, I don't think he ever managed to sweep it under the rug. From my own reading of his articles about this, and he wrote quite early on outside of the dragon about kind of fantasy wargaming, the influence of J.R.R. Tolkien in particular. There's a famous article about that, that he did. You know, I think he was mostly concerned that it had become a standard. It becomes such an expectation on the part of readers that your description of, for example, a troll can form with what Tolkien presents, a troll Right. Uh, to be, and he didn't want to be boxed in by that. He wanted his troll to be able to be the true troll, the regenerating troll <laughs> from you know Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions. Right. And and by the way, your your Anderson choice, I thought was was great. I just um, I, I'm adore not sure that, read story. that story before.
2: Oh, I love it so much. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm not sure I'd read that one before. I've I'm, I'm obviously pretty yeah, familiar it's with his his novel, Tales but, of Hawk,
2: um, which um which yeah, I think is a, more is while it's not mentioned, it is one of the sort of Viking part of that Viking thing that Gygax does mention in the book. What's the um sorry I lost the name of the book that um Henderson wrote, which is sort of his Viking uh Broken Sword? Broken Sword, yes, thank you. Yes. Um so that doesn't appear there, but it's of that sensibility. But I think it's a very wonderful so. tale and also feels in some ways very much like a D adventure. Um a single person, but in terms of the right. encounter and there being almost these rules around different, what he can wear to the fight, what works and what doesn't, you know, and you, a I even wanted to call out rules for grappling up here, sort of in that story. So I hope when your readers find that those, that for the readers that find that for the first time are are also um, enjoy it. It's a
1: wonderful tale. Yeah, I mean, stylistically also, it shows Anderson at his peak, I think. Yes. I mean, I think the way that he, you know, melds in these kind of Viking era concepts and vocabulary and his presentation of it um, is really exemplary. And it's a, it's a cool, creepy story. It really too. is. And, and I, mean, I found it, it in <laughs> A swords
2: against darkness. So again, it's still part of those works that appear in the appendix end.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I and I'm sure you, you know, Tolkien, there's nothing bite-sized you could have put it in, even if the rights were available. Like, you right. know, it's because that stuff is all this just so huge. I mean, there aren't yes. really a lot of short stories you could break off from it. I mean, what what else would you have loved to be able to include that you couldn't manage to get in? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'll tell reason? you. So
2: I really wanted um a Fox Gardner uh tale of um his, his barbarian just the name again. Colthar, Cothar the barbarian, yeah. Um, that would have been a lot of fun. Here's the one that I was close to doing for the one excerpt other than the the Song of Swords, which is a poem that appears in the Book of Swords um, by Saber Hagen. I That felt to me actually like a very D&D thing that works on its own, even though it really is sort of an excerpt. But the only other excerpt I really wanted was going to be very expensive, it turned out, was I wanted a scene from the Once and Future King Hmm. Which is personally one of my favorite, not only favorite fantasy novels but favorite novels. It is it is absolutely the antidote to cynicism. If you're if you need that in your life, I recommend the ones of *Future King*. And there is a scene in there where they, uh, the young Arthur and his um, companion, discover essentially um, Robin Hood a sort of Robin Hood pastiche and made Marion. And they have to go and find a witch's house. And it is a perfect description of rangering in D&D. And it's a wonderful part of the novel, but there's these very specific descriptions of Marion teaching Arthur how to be a ranger in the woods and how to track something and how to be quiet how do you stealth in the book? It's a, it's a wonderful moment. And I, you know, I was able to get in touch with the, with the estate, but the amount of money they wanted, you know, for, for, for that excerpt was just impossible.
1: That's too bad. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah.
2: And the Pratt stuff I wanted, you know, there, again, there were just folks that either weren't responsive or with the Fox gardener, they, didn't want to provide uh, the rights because they are in the process of putting together their own anthology of his tales. So they didn't want it to write on the But then there were some surprises. The people that managed the Conan estate, the easiest rights acquiring I had to do. Cheap, very kind, excited, supportive. I thought that was going to be a headache, trying to get rights to a Conan story. But it was... They were very, very generous and and very, like I said, very um, excited about the project as well. So,
1: So, I mean, I I was very interested to see that you included just a little bit of comics. And in fact, I, I may have read a hint in your introduction that if there were to be a sequel to this book, perhaps you could do something. And I think that would be a very interesting project. So kind of where do you see the comics angle on this? Cause obviously comics exerted an enormous influence. Yeah, it was an enormous know.
2: influence. And then I think, like we said, would become something that would start to reveal the influence of D&D, right, on the culture. And so I, I see an appendix N, uh, like an appendix N squared. And that's sort of a, that was sort of a tease to it. Uh, something that would include some of the early world's best fantasy collections post D and D or around the time, you know, the early eighties when we're starting to see that stuff that was, you know, that it could have been something that came out a year after the dungeon master's guide was published. And so God, of just didn't have access to it. Right. There's a bunch of wonderful tales um, and and excerpts from comics and things that I think could be a fun, very much my appendix N of the appendix N as a, as an idea.
1: But, but I mean, so much of it comes over directly. I mean, obviously there was the Roy Thomas Conan books. I mean, uh, rights for those might be difficult to secure at this point. Yes. (laughs) But there's some great stories
2: from creepy and eerie that were part of that. And again, some of these, the story, the, the comic that's in there first appeared and actually in a fanzine. Um, So there's, there's still that ongoing fanzine culture that at the time that, you know, could provide some really wonderful tales that are likely both cross influencing.
1: Yeah. I I remember even in season of the witch, I think you alluded to creepy and eerie and things like that at one point, again, just giving people the broader context of this. And I think it is, it's, it's impossible to look at any of these things in isolation, the web of influences that surround them, that kind of culturally influenced them at the time, um, is, is so immense. I'm sure you could do a whole music based sequence. Oh, stages absolutely. Stages of yes, yes. <laughs> Where's yes. the album version? Yes. <laughs> yes. And it would be
2: very interesting. And I would love to know if you've thought about this. And I know uh, how much would, you know, maybe we could end on this, but how much do you feel that talking about context, that Dungeons and Dragons is a product of the 1970s, that it couldn't have happened in another decade? I mean, there's there's a
1: number of reasons why that's true. Yes. I mean, the, the popularity of Tolkien, I think, was essential to it. And it really wasn't until Tolkien had reached, you know, where it's now a number one bestseller on the New York Times list. The most improbable thing that could have happened, <laughs> That's right? In, 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 but you know, it was the cultural forces of the, of the '60s, and you talk about this a lot too—the idealism, the medievalism, agrarianism—you um, know—that that helped popularize it. It was an attention. Yeah, society again, for creative anachronism, right? Is certainly yeah. So yeah, I mean, all those things coming together, and you also, you to the SCA, you can't understate the degree to which the protagonists in the SCA were early adopters of D&D, especially in the Bay area and helped define the reception of the game and steer it in directions that maybe the folks in Lake Geneva wouldn't have intended.
2: Right. Cause they were still thinking about war gamers. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think they're I totally agreed. I mean, you, you need a bit of that sixties idealism and you need its crash. You need Vietnam mm-hmm. so much. You see, like a drive towards fantasy wargaming and kind of fantastic conceptions, especially the, unfortunately, the sort of reductive good versus evil that was so lacking in the way that people looked at the American intervention in Vietnam, right? That that escapist fantasy, I think, was absolutely essential to the reception of D D and, and related things. And we are we are getting to it. We are getting to the hour. I feel like we could do an entire other hour <laughs> on right. this, Peter. Really, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank I you. tremendously enjoyed the book. Um thank highly you. recommend it. It comes out uh soon. February
2: 21st is the pub date for the paperback.
1: I don't know when this podcast will air, but probably around that time, I imagine it will be forthcoming. It is pre-orderable, I assume. And there's a deluxe edition as well. Is I think right? it's or... completely
2: sold out. Oh, yes. Yeah. But the timing is nice because you also have a book coming out around about D&D culture.
1: I have a couple. Yeah, I, I just did a book called The Elusive Shift that yes. came out in uh, December of uh, 2020. That is, with MIT um, Press. With MIT Press, yeah, yeah that is, um, yeah, about kind of how people made sense of what it could mean for something to be a role-playing game once d d was unleashed, how the role-playing game genre got constructed by the earliest adopters, including a lot of those folks who were in the SCA. That is out, you can get that now if you want. I guess I should be plugging in of if course. we're doing this on MIT. <laughs> Absolutely. <podcast>. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, seriously, Peter, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. we should talk, we should talk more. Oh, yeah, no. We should just talk offline. Yeah, please. Please, let's do that. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks again. And uh, I guess with that, we will be done for today.
0: Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast. And thank you to John and Peter for that wonderful discussion. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you don't wanna miss future episodes. And if you can, head over to iTunes to give us a five-star review. Finally, thank you to Samantha Doyle, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristin Galineau, who produced the soundtrack.